I am Pastor Michael. We are doing a sermon series in the book of Deuteronomy. And I have to say, I have really enjoyed preaching through this series. You know, I really love studying and teaching the Bible. It is my passion. And I especially have enjoyed Deuteronomy because I know for many people, Deuteronomy is rather remote and opaque. And what I want to show you is that Deuteronomy is the beginning of the story, where all the pieces are being put in place, where all the plot lines are being set up, and which will find its final and ultimate resolution in Jesus Christ. And that's the goal. The goal is to know and to love Jesus more deeply through Deuteronomy. So with that in mind, let's read our text. This is Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. I'll read it for you. You can follow along. At that, at that time, the Lord said to me, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were written on the first tablet that you broke, on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the first and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets in the same writings as before the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are as the Lord commanded me. Verse 6. The people of Israel journeyed from Berath. Berath is a Hebrew word for wells. From the wells of Ben-Yakan to Moserah. There Aaron died and there he was buried. And his son Eleazar ministered as priest in his place. From there they journeyed to Gudgoda, and from Gudgoda to Jotbatha, a land with brooks of water. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, to bless in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights. And the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people, so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. This is the word of God. So I have two points. Here's my outline. Number one, we're going to see that the tablets are remade. And then secondly, we're going to see the inheritance of the Levites. So two points. So let's begin. Number one, the tablets are remade. So what are these tablets? These are tablets of stone upon which were written the Ten Commandments. Now, what is the significance that they were reconstituted, right? They they were reconstructed. And here you have to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 9. I thought Wade did an excellent job of it last week. If you'll remember, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, 
It's the story of the people of Israel worshiping the golden calf. And then Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, and he's carrying with him two tablets of stone. Now, by the way, why two? And the answer is that in any covenant, there are two parties involved, and each party gets a copy of the, the, the contract, the terms of agreement, right? So God gets a copy, Israel gets a copy, so that they're on the same page. Let me give you an analogy. It's like a wedding ceremony. You know, a marriage is also a covenant, just like the Mosaic Covenant. And in a marriage, in a wedding, there are two parties. There's the bride and there's the groom. And they're both making vows to one another. And they're both putting on the symbols of the covenant. What are the symbols of the marriage covenant? They are the wedding rings. How many wedding rings are there? There's not just one wedding ring, right? There's two wedding rings, which each party puts on because they're both making vows to one another. So in the same way, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and he is carrying with him two tablets of stone. The Written on them are the terms of the covenant and they are also symbols of the covenant, just like wedding rings. And when Moses comes down, what does he see? He sees the people of Israel worshiping another God, another God. And this is happening, let me emphasize at the exact moment, okay? Comprehend this. At the exact same time that Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the covenant from God. It would be like, if I can go back to the analogy of the wedding, um, it would be like it's the day of the wedding. And the groom is standing there waiting at the altar with his groomsmen all lined up. The pastor's there. The guests are all seated. The ceremony is about to start, but where is the bride? The bridesmaids don't know. Everyone goes out searching for the bride. And they later discover that at that exact moment, the bride was at the apartment of her illicit lover committing adultery. That's what was happening in the text. In fact, if you read um, Exodus, the text literally says, Israel was whoring after other gods. And so what does Moses do? He takes the stone tablets and he raises them over his head and then he smashes them on the ground, shattering them into a thousand pieces because, don't you understand the symbolism, the covenant is broken. It would be like the groom taking a sledgehammer and smashing the wedding rings because the rings have been rendered meaningless by this act of infidelity. Now we're ready to read chapter 10. Let me read it to you again, verses 1 through 2. At that time, the Lord said to me, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. Why like the first? Because remember the first had been destroyed. So in other words, God is saying, construct a new set of tablets and come up to me on the mountain 
and make an ark of wood, and I will write on tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So what does it mean? Let me pause for a moment. So what does it mean that the tablets are remade? It means that God has freely and fully forgiven his people. And then he restarts, he reinitiates this covenant relationship. And what he's basically saying is, let's start over again. Let's try this again let's begin anew and i want to meditate on this for a moment because i want you to understand the magnitude of the grace of god you know it would make sense if god had said okay i forgive you but there's going to have to be some changes because this isn't working out and In fact, I want to change the terms of the covenant because I don't trust you. You're not reliable. And I think it's best that we begin with by putting you on probation. Let's see how you do. Let's see if you improve and then I can love you again. We actually actually see this. Let me pause. All right. Thank you for your patience. Christina says I always get three. So that was my second. All right. Um, So we actually see this in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Do you remember the story Jesus told? A younger son rejects his father. He goes off to a far country, reckless living, squanders his wealth. And he reaches this place of deep emptiness and brokenness. And he decides to return home back to his father. And if you remember in the story, on the journey home, this son is rehearsing a speech. He's practicing what he's going to say to his father. This is what he says in verse 18. This is the rehearsed, this is the uh, the speech he's rehearsing. He says, he will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so you can see that the son comes up with a restitution plan. He's going to say, Father, don't accept me as a son. Treat me as one of your hired hands. And then you'll see, I'm going to work so hard. And then slowly, little by little, I'm going to regain your trust. I'm going to earn back all of the money that I lost. And then what happens in the story? Jesus says, the son comes home and he begins the speech. Father, I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. But before he can say the restitution plan, 
Jesus says the father falls upon the son and covers him with kisses. And he embraces his son and he says, bring me my robe, bring me my signet ring and put them on my son and kill the fattened calf because we're going to have a feast like none other because my son has returned home. I don't think we understand. I don't think we have the categories to comprehend the breadth and the width and and the fullness of God's grace. Because God doesn't just partially forgive us, but you know, there's still some debt left over, so you better work hard to work off that debt. But instead, God takes the record of our sins. Colossians 2.14 says, it's, he nails it to the cross. And then Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no residual judgment or punishment because on the cross, Jesus Christ fully paid for our sins. I love the imagery in Micah chapter 7, verse 19. The prophet says, You have cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Imagine that you're on a boat and you're out in the ocean and you look over the side, you can see the murky depths and you take out of your pocket a pebble and you drop it into the sea and down, down it sinks until you can't see it anymore And it keeps going down into the bottomless depths and it is gone forever. You will never see that stone again. This is what God has done with our sins. Or listen to Psalm 103 verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Here's a quiz for those of you who understand geography. How far is the east from the west? And the answer is east and west are not specific geographic locations. They are opposite directions on the compass. So that you can start walking east and you can walk for a thousand years and you will never reach a point where you cannot continue going east. Which means there is an infinite distance between the east and the west. That is how far God has removed the record of our sins from us. Isaiah 43, verse 25, God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions and I will remember not your sins. I want everyone to hear me. If you are in Christ, if you have given your life to Christ, your sins, no matter what you have done, are fully forgiven. And that means the record of your sins will never be held against you. They will never be brought up against you. God says, I will remember them not. And then in Christ, you are made new. You are washed clean. God says, bring me my robe. Bring me my signet ring. This is my precious son. This is my beloved daughter. This is the grace of God. Do you understand the symbolism that the tablets are remade. Second point, the inheritance of the Levites. So let's continue in the passage. Verses 6 and 7 is a travelogue. 
Moses notes the various milestones on the journey as they go through the wilderness. And what is noteworthy here is the presence of water. I don't know if you caught that. They began at the wells of Ben Yakan, and then they end at the brooks of Jotbatha. And so here we see God's constant provision through this thirsty land so that the people always have sufficient water for their needs. And then in verse 6, we're given this curious little note that Aaron died at Moserah and his son Eleazar succeeded him. So why is that significant? Well, you have to remember that it was Aaron who had constructed the golden calf. He was the architect. He was the ringleader of this idolatry. And what is so amazing is the text tells us that Aaron was not struck dead for his sins at Mount Sinai as he deserved. But the text tells us that instead he died of natural causes in the wilderness years later. And then his son, Eleazar, succeeds him as the high priest of Israel so that God did not withdraw his favor from his family, but he continued to show grace to this family. And so we see, you know, the the mercy and the forgiveness of God. In this little verse, you have this beautiful story of grace. And then we get to verse 8. And at verse 8, it tells us that at Mount Sinai, God sets apart the tribe of Levi and he appoints them as priests. And for the rest of the time, we're going to look at this because this is really significant. I think it is really profound. And in fact, we have an entire book of the Bible dedicated to this subject called Leviticus. And here's the basic outline. So at Mount Sinai, God makes arrangements for the religious life of Israel. And at the center is the tabernacle with its elaborate system of uh, sacrifices, You have um, a series of religious feasts like Yom Yom Kippur, Passover, with its attendant rituals. All of these activities require um, a whole cadre of workers. And then on top of that, you have the necessity for religious instruction. You need qualified teachers of the Torah. And all of this is a very involving job, far beyond what anyone can do on a part-time basis. And so God commissions a dedicated group of people to do this work full-time. And those are the Levites. uh, This is the tribe of Levi. You'll remember Levi was the third son of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. This is where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. And so basically you have an entire tribe dedicated, commissioned as priests of the people. And we see a summary list of their responsibilities in verse 8. They're in charge of the furnishings of the tabernacle. They're the only ones authorized to carry the ark. They are the worship leaders of Israel. We saw that in the call to worship. They are the teachers of Israel. They live in all of the towns with the people, and they minister to the people. They teach the people the Bible. And so it's very similar to pastors today. And so that's verse 8. All of Leviticus summarized in a single verse. And then we get to verse 9. Verse 9 is very, very interesting. And what we're going to do is we're going to read it. 
And then we're going to do some analysis. And I want you to notice, first of all, there are two parts to verse 9, okay? So let me read you verse 9, listen to this. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. Very, very significant. As I said, there are two parts. Let's look at them one at a time. In the first part, it says, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. So what is this talking about? This is talking about the land allotments in Canaan. If you remember, the people of Israel are going to receive the promised land, which they will conquer from the Canaanites. And then the land is going to be evenly distributed among the 12 tribes. And every family will get a fair share. And this will be their homestead for perpetuity, right? The, The land can never be taken from them. And this is the land upon which they will raise crops and support their family. And this is what the text means by portion. Every tribe, every family will receive a portion of the land. But the Bible uses this other word, inheritance. Now, you have to understand Hebrew is a very metaphorical language. And this word inheritance has this very um, rich and deep meaning in the ancient world. So what is an inheritance? An inheritance is wealth that you receive from your parents. And, you know, some of us have an inheritance coming. Some of us have no inheritance or practically no inheritance. And, you know, because we live in the modern economy, for the most part, it's not a big deal. But you have to understand that in the ancient world, it was a huge deal because the ancient world was not a dynamic economy. You could not just go out there, get an education, and sort of make it on your own. Almost all wealth in the ancient world was inherited wealth because almost all wealth was this land that you passed down, down through the generations in your family. And so you have to understand that in the ancient world, the wealth was in the land. It's where you grow crops. It's where you raise animals. It's where you draw your livelihood. And in that culture, it's where you found your status and your dignity in, your, in that society because it was security for your family for the future. Now, that's true of all ancient peoples. But for Israelites, it was more than that. The land had this emotional, spiritual meaning because after the wilderness, it was a place of rest, a place of peace where you would be safe from your enemies. There's this wonderful line from Micah 4.4 that really captures um, this spirit. Listen to this verse. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree and no one will make him afraid. That was the land. It was not just for economic sustenance, but for the people of Israel, it had this emotional and spiritual meaning. And now we can appreciate, we can begin to appreciate the weight, the weight of this statement. The Levites will have no portion or inheritance with their brothers. 
Now, why were they excluded? And the answer is really simple. It was for the practical, very pragmatic reason that the work of the Levites was so involving, it was so all-encompassing that they had to do it on a full-time basis. And if they were doing this full-time, all their time, all their energy is devoted to this, then where are they going to find the time and the energy to raise crops, to run a farm? And if they don't have a farm, then how are they going to eat? Where are they going to get the money to pay the bills? And so God gives the, the, the Levites this very practical arrangement. The Levites will draw their living from tithes and offerings. This is explained in some detail in Numbers in Leviticus, you'll remember that um, the tithe is 10% of your income. By the way, the Levites were also required to give a tithe. And if you do the math, everyone is giving 10% of their income. There are 12 tribes. If you take into account other costs, other recipients of the tithe, it basically works out that the Levites get a roughly equal share of the national wealth. And then you might say, okay, That makes sense. Isn't that what we sort of do for pastors today? Doesn't seem all that complicated. That's true. But then we get to the second half of verse 9. Second half of verse 9, very curious, it says, the Lord is his inheritance. So Moses says, the Levites have no land inheritance, but the Lord is his inheritance. So what is that all about? You have to think about it from the perspective of the Levites. Forty years wandering in the wilderness. At last they come into Canaan. And there's great rejoicing. All of their fellow Israelites receive their portion of the land. This is their inheritance. This is the land that they will pass down in their family generation after generation. But the Levites will get no property. They will instead receive tithes, but nothing tangible. Do you understand? Nothing physical that they could put their hands on and build a life upon. And therefore, you have to understand that the Levites were in an incredibly precarious financial situation. Because if your livelihood depends on other people's generosity, that's not really a great place you want to be. This is reflected in the constant reminders in the Bible to the people of Israel not to neglect the Levites. So you'll have verses like Deuteronomy 14.29, Do not forget the Levite or the sojourner, or the fatherless, or the widow who lives among you. If you know your Bible, you know the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. This triad of people, we're going to look at this at at further length later on, but this triad of people represent the most economically vulnerable people in that society. And you'll notice the Levites are included among them. They were in an incredibly vulnerable position because they were subject, their livelihood was subject to how pious 
the people happen to feel. If you know the history of Israel, that's not something you could take to the bank. And so you might say, okay, I get it now. I get it. This is a word of comfort for the Levites. This is a consolation prize, right? Moses is saying to them, okay, you don't, you're not going to get a land inheritance, but the Lord is your inheritance. Through your religious work, the Lord is your inheritance. It's a kind of expression of compassion and pity. I want you to know that's not true. If you read the Psalms, there are so many places in the Psalms where it picks up this exact language. The Lord is my inheritance. He is my portion. And what's happening is that the psalmist uses this blessing given to the Levites. Let me pause for my third and final time. Who is flying on the Lord's day? I, I don't know. I don't know. It's questionable. Okay. If you read the Psalms, what the psalmist is doing is he's using this blessing given to the Levites. And he's using it as the highest blessing. The greatest of all the blessings. And therefore... This is not a consolation prize for the Levites. This is not some kind of spiritualized language to dress up what is in the end a lesser reward. Because if you understand the text, the Levites, above all the other tribes of Israel, you have to understand this. The Levites are being singled out for this higher, greater reward they receive this higher honor and blessing because better than the land is the Lord God himself. He is their reward. He is their great treasure. And then God has the audacity to use this very pregnant word of inheritance. And he says to the Levites, I am your inheritance. I am your portion in this life you are not getting the leftovers you are not getting the scraps from the table after everyone else has had their fill you are getting the best portion you are getting the first and highest portion which is me that's what verse 9 is telling us verse 9 is saying that the levites were singled out They were singled out for God's favor. Now, let's apply this. Some of you, I know many of you, you feel like a Levite. And you feel excluded from the economic prosperity that is happening all around you. And it just feels like the world is passing you by. And I feel like nowhere is this more resonant. Nowhere is this more um, true than in the Bay Area. There is so much wealth in the Bay Area. 
And just living here makes you feel frantic. And you're trying to buy a house. And so you're just killing yourself. You know, you're just killing yourself to save for a down payment. And then housing prices leap up. And it just feels like you're falling further and further behind. It feels like you have no inheritance in this life. But I want you to consider the Levites who were not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. They were the most blessed. The most blessed. And I want you to to know this applies not just to those of you who feel left out of the economic prosperity, but some of you are not married. You're single. And you're longing for the companionship of marriage. Some of you are childless, and it feels like everyone around you is having children, and it makes your heart ache. Some of you have poor health, and you're not asking for pristine health. All you want is a day without pain. I want you to know you are the most blessed. You are the most blessed. You see, because the Levites lacked earthly blessings, it gave them the clear eyes to see the ultimate treasure, which is fellowship with God. The Bible says God draws near to the lowly and to the brokenhearted. In James chapter 1, there's this beautiful verse, verses 9 and 10. Listen to this. The brother... In in humble circumstances, that's the Levites. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. I want you to know that the Bible says that the wealth of this world, you need to listen to me, the wealth of this world is passing away. It is like the flowers of the field. Today they bloom, tomorrow they are gone. The wealth of this world is ephemeral. It will not last. Listen to me, the Bible is not saying wealth is bad. But you have to understand that wealth is an earthly blessing. But it is only a sign pointing to the true wealth, which 1 Peter 1.4 says is an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. What is this inheritance? When you read the Old Testament, the inheritance was the land of Canaan. But when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament writers picks up, they use this very pregnant word, inheritance, and they use it to describe salvation in Jesus Christ. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called, listen to this, may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Don't you understand? When you read the book of Deuteronomy, 
it seems like the Levites received this sort of spiritualized metaphor of an inheritance, but their fellow Israelites got the real thing, which is the land. They got the actual inheritance. But don't you realize it's the other way around? The Levites got the real thing. And it was the land that was the metaphor. See, all the, all the earthly blessings of this life, marriage, children, health, career, friends, vacations, they're all good things. But they are only signs pointing to the true wealth, which is Jesus Christ. It's like a jewelry box. Imagine one day you receive a jewelry box and it's made of cardboard, but it's really pretty. It's colorful. It's well-designed. And you say, oh, what a, what a beautiful jewelry box. And you're so enamored. You're so captivated by this jewelry box that you never open it. And you fail to see that inside the jewelry box is the real treasure, which is this priceless diamond ring. Some of you are stuck at the jewelry box. But listen to James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? And to inherit, that's the language of inheritance, the kingdom he promised to those who love him. This is an inheritance that you can only see with the eyes of faith. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, So we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is is eternal. Will you join me in prayer? Almighty God, give us eyes of faith. Open our hearts to see the incredible treasure that we have in Jesus Christ. And help us to hold on lightly to the treasures of this world. Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but in the end, to lose his soul. Proverbs says that the wealth of the rich is a strong city, and they imagine it an unscalable wall. But the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and all who run into it are safe. That is our true security. There is where we are truly safe. Jesus Christ, help us to cling to him. He is our fortress, our rock, the foundation upon which we can, the only foundation upon which we can build our life. Give us these eyes of faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.